It is Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for, for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Kathy. Again, if you're just now joining us, my name is Evan Skelton. I am one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Bayless. And before we get started in our passage today, I just want to share some good news with you, celebrate something with you that the elders and I have are grateful along with you for, and that last week the congregation voted to add a fourth pastor elder to our shepherd shepherding team here, our leadership team, Peter Hodges, we're very grateful for. Um, brother, I, I praise God for you here. We can give a round of applause to the Lord. Um, again, we understand uh, here, um, here's what that involves and why it's such a good, good news for us. The Bible says that it, out of God's kindness to care for us, as the chief shepherd he is, he has chosen to nonetheless entrust shepherds to his people that care for them. In fact, it says in Hebrews that those elders will have to give an account for every soul that has been entrusted to them. That makes me shake in my boots a little bit, tell you what. And it makes me just, again, so astonished that anyone would sign up for the task, let alone Peter. We do so because God has been so kind to us. We recognize the weight that it is, and we're so grateful that you would entrust that weight to be shouldered, not just by one person, but as we see as a regular pattern in the Bible, by a team of shepherd elders that love you and are led supremely by Jesus himself. He is the head of this church, no person that's on this stage. And so we uh, praise God for that, and we ask you, and I just freely ask you to pray for your elders as we ask you to pray already together. Um, pastoral work is hard, very difficult. I was aware of it even this week. It can be very personal. It can be sometimes brutal. And if you've not reached out to your elders, particularly to Larry, John, and Peter, to encourage them, let me just encourage you to do so. Here's what's so remarkable about them. They do so unpaid. They don't get any check. They don't get any plaques. They get rarely any backslaps. They do so because they love Jesus and they love you. And it's, I tell you what, being in the room with those men gives me life, gives me more courage. It shows me more what Jesus is like, and I'm very grateful for their wisdom. I encourage, you know, Hebrews 13, 17, again, tells us that a pastor and pastor elders collectively are responsible to keep watch over the souls of the members of this church. And the work, uh, that work can sometimes feel discouraging and fruitless. Hebrews 13 also goes on to say, let them do their work with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Isn't that wonderful? Let them do so without groaning. I think we can say that that, of course, would be of no advantage to anyone. In other words, a pastor who hates his job doesn't do anyone good. And one of the ways that you can circumvent that and help them walk in godliness is to give them encouragement. And please do pray that Jesus makes himself famous in, through, and sometimes in spite of your leaders. 
But um, all that being said, we are going to pick up in uh, Exodus today, our series. We have been in here for a few weeks. We will be here actually through Easter. And then we were, we're going through Exodus chapters 1 through 15 and calling this first part, Drawn Out, the story of God's drawing of his people out of slavery so that he might draw them to himself, which we will consider next year as we return to Exodus. But when, where we're at in Exodus, we have to say, has been uh, not exactly the most rosy and wonderful passages. It's been pretty dark, actually, and hopeless. We're at a point in Exodus in which Israel, just remember, if you've, not, if you've been here the last few weeks, has been in brutal slavery for perhaps centuries not uh, to mention they now have endured the ruthless genocide of their baby boys. Only to now have a rescuer that seems positioned to save them, the only rescuer who would be qualified, it seems, for the task, now failing miserably and fleeing into the wilderness. Not exactly chapters full of hope, it would seem. And yet we can't neglect a God who's been at work behind the scenes all the way. Things are going to, to shift now, moving forward, in a massive way, particularly when we get to Exodus chapter 3 and the, some, and the often, well, the fairly famous passage about the burning bush as an avalanche of events will all take place as like one domino and another as the, that results not just in the humiliation of the oppressors of Israel, but finally in the Exodus itself. In the space of the next 13 chapters, these seemingly God-forsaken slaves will be sent out of Egypt, kicked out of Egypt by who? No other than Pharaoh himself, none other than Pharaoh himself, their oppressor. And they would be led by the once-failed hero that had long given up on rescuing this people on the way to the land God had promised them. The question is, and here's what I want us to get into before we get into these three verses, is what happened between all the dark and hopeless events of chapters 1 and 2 and all of the wonderful, glorious intervention and rescue of God in, chap in chapters 3 through 15? What happens between part 1 and part 2? How is it that darkness turns toward light? How is it that everything hopeless turns to hope? How is it that everything cursed now seems to be reversed? The short answer? Well, God. Now, it sounds really trite, especially you'd expect to hear that from a sermon on Sunday, but we need to look at this significantly, that the, the change, the, the catalyst, the first snowball that causes the avalanche is God himself. Now, I don't want to say, I don't, I don't even say that it's, it's because God chose to act, although that's true. Today, we're going to look at something even more important. We're going to look at why God chose to act. What caused the exodus? God, who he was and always will be. Today, we're going to consider what is still true about our God. And we're going to slow down to consider just three of the most important verses, not only found in Exodus, but in the entire Bible, unpacking just four phrases that we are going to see there. And we're going to unpack them, and uh, we're going to change up the order, and I'll tell you why in just a second. First, God heard. Second, 
God saw. Third, God knew. And then fourth, God remembered. You ready? You ready to look at these together? Again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. The best thing you can do is to keep your Bibles open this morning to see these words for yourselves. But before we, again, before we get to these verses, last time we were in Exodus, we need to say again, Moses, who is famous for leading Israel from Egypt, again, through the great sea and on to the promised land, that great Moses who causes miracles with his staff, again, speaks from God on high and humiliates Pharaoh, this Pharaoh has, I mean, sorry, this Moses has been now fleeing as a giant failure away from Egypt, away from his home, to live out his days as he thinks as a foreigner, a foreign sheep herder at that, ready to die in the Midian wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai. Again, he will spend the next 40-ish years there. He will settle down. He has a son. He definitely does not expect to be called by God. We're going to look at this next week. Verse 23 again tells us during these 40 years, two significant things take place. First, the king in Egypt, the Pharaoh, who had just run Moses out of the country, died. And second, and this is perhaps even more important, nothing changed for Israel. In fact, it may have even got worse. You ever hoped that a change in power maybe at your workplace? You got somebody new in the position that would solve all your problems and it only made them worse? Let alone the implications for politics I'm not going to get into today. Where we, nonetheless, again, you can imagine with the Israelites hoping beyond hope this would be the Pharaoh that would at least lighten the load. And that was far from the truth. So much so, it says that the people moaned, groaned, screamed, desperate for help. It actually uses the words twice, if you notice, about them groaning and crying, emphasizing their unrelenting and ever-worsening slavery. Leland Riken, one commentator, points out that together all of these words express intense grief, bitter distress, bitter distress, and painful agony. Has that ever described your life? I remember a few years ago, I was in the emergency room uh, with severe gastrointestinal pain. The pain was so bad that in the emergency room, all I could do was groan as loud as I could. In fact, they shut me away in a back room, lights off, felt totally isolated in the emergency room, wondering if that doctor was ever coming. I found myself groaning even louder just to get someone's attention and give me the meds that I needed. It's the image here, actually, of collective anguish over old sorrows so unrelenting and agonizing that all the people can do is groan. No polished prayers or deep reflections are recounted here, only a collective groan up to heaven to the God that, to be honest, they perhaps hardly knew, desperate for his help. Again, perhaps you've been there yourself. 
You ever been at a place in which it feels like you don't even have words to pray anymore? Like you can only groan up your misery and disappointment. All you can do is utter up a cry to God that is much of a cry as, God, where are you? As it is a cry, God, would you help me? Sometimes we wonder, does our suffering go unnoticed by God? Does, do our prayers even matter in the throne room of heaven? And as the years go on, sometimes, as God does not choose to intervene, it seems his silence will never break. What does this mean here that when verse 23 tells us their cries came up to God? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God only hears our pain when it reaches a certain volume. If you've ever seen the kids movie, and I quote from kids movies a lot, but Horton hears a who? It's really cheesy based on a Dr. Seuss book and the clouds will not allow the who's to reach their cries won't reach anybody on the outside until they get of a sufficient volume to break the clouds open and finally they can hear is that what we have going on does it take just something really serious to get God's attention sometimes we view prayer like bottling messages and sending them out to sea one after another, just hoping they end up washing on the shore of someone. Hoping someone receives them. That's not what this is saying. No, this has to do, actually, with God's posture, his consistent and constant posture towards those he loves. And an assurance that those he loves can cling to even when no one else around them seems to care what is going on. Psalms 34, verse 15, puts it this way. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. In other words, God is not like me. God is not like an often distracted parent whose attention you need to demand. No, his basic posture towards those he loves is interest and engagement. You ever been trying to listen to somebody, but you also really want to hear that conversation over there? I mean, you can be honest. Maybe it's just me. That's not God. His attention is never divided. Unlike God, unlike us, God's ears are always toward those he loves. God hears. We have his full attention. He hears every prayer that is directed to him, even the most desperate and inarticulate, even offered by those who don't know very, God very well at all. Psalm 34, 15, this passage, though, if you can put it one more time on the screen, doesn't just say that his ears are toward their cry. What does it say? His eyes as well which we see in Exodus chapter 2, if we want to look back at our verses, specifically in verse 25. If you would go to that verse, God saw the people of Israel. Now imagine with me, just hypothetically of course, that one of my children one, runs up to me and says, Dad, he hit me. Only to have the brother, as often that is, that is, uh, 
say back, what do you think? No, I didn't. Hypothetically, of course, right? Or again, hypothetically, say I came into a room to see a plate smashed on the floor and ask my kids, who did this? Only to have them respond, how, how would you expect? Not me. As a parent, I have to tell you, Grace and I are all too aware of all that we don't see around our of all the things we don't know. As much as I, it was, I, I, as much as I wish it was true that I had eyes in the back of my head, I don't. Don't tell my kids. Still, I think many of us not only wish we could see things clearly in our lives, wish we could see what really happened on the news, I think many of us, we wish someone could actually see us. See us clearly. To see our lives for what they actually are. Not just what others assume that they are, or even what we so expertly craft and put in front of others. Many of us, just to be honest, have endured some really ugly things in our lives. Some of us have wept tears only we have known about. Some of us have had things said to us that were cruel and untrue. We've had things done to us that you could only describe as evil. Friends, there is one who sees. As David puts it in Psalm 56, you have kept count of my tossings, put my ears, in my tears, I'm sorry, in your bottle. Are they not in your book. Do you see God as a God who knows every anxious night you have spent not being able to fall asleep and the things that have kept you up? A God who counts your tears, keeps them in a bottle. When it tells us in verse 26 that God saw the people of Israel, it does not mean that he glanced them or they caught his attention. It means something more like he looked intently on them. He wanted to see them. He witnessed and understood everything that had happened with perfect clarity. There was nothing hidden before the eyes of God. He weighed more than videotape evidence and eyewitness testimony. Every strike from every master, every tear from every mother, Every fear of every child was numbered and counted before God. God sees. Friends, this means that if even there was no one else in the room with you where it happened, there was one who has seen you. He knows every heartache, every anxious fear, every hidden cruelty. He sees it in perfect unfiltered detail. He doesn't see it through an Instagram filter. He doesn't see it with whatever you say to someone else on a Sunday morning when you say, I'm fine. He sees through it all. What was done to you or said to you is not only seen by God, it matters to him. And in the next chapter, God will even tell Moses of his people in verse 16, 
I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Notice that same word, only intense. It's not just saw, it's observed, as in sought to know, as in intentional looking. And not just that he heard what was done to them, not even simply that he observed what was done to them. Do you know the, notice the words at the end of verse 16? What does he say? I have observed you. He says, I have observed you in the sense that he has known what that action or that word did to you, what it meant to you, what kind of doubts and fears came over you. He says of his people, I have seen you. One old preacher puts it this way, Maxie Durham, Dunham, I'm sorry, every blow of the hand that buffets you. Every cut of the scourge, every scorching hour under the noontide sun, every lonely hour when lovers and friends stand aloof, every step into the valley of the shadow, every moment of sleep beneath the juniper tree is watched by the eyes that never slumber nor sleep. God hears, God saw, and third, I want to consider God knew in verse 25. It's actually how our passage ends, isn't it? And God knew. I have to tell you, this idea is, per, is, is particularly difficult for many of us. As comforting as the other words are, this doesn't seem to comfort us. What does it mean that an all-perceiving God heard or that an all-seeing God saw, let alone that an all-knowing God knew. And what in the world does it mean that an all-knowing God remembered? Ask my wife, and she will tell you that her husband needs to remember a great deal of things in his life that he does not. He needs to remember where he put his keys, where he put his wallet, where he put his bloom in mind. And there are plenty of things her husband really should stand to know at this point. Again, is this what God is like? Perhaps maybe even this confirms our greatest fears. Maybe that it is actually that God is really busy with so many important things, running the universe, so many more important things that he just simply forgets me, gets distracted, until things get really bad and he has no other choice but to step in and says, okay, yeah, I guess I promised to help. I really should do something. Or maybe simply he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't understand what we're really going through. He doesn't really know we desperately need his help. He's bought the lie that we've given to others that we're doing fine. Thank you very much. Like the child who never complains, perhaps God just assumes that we're fine and moves on to those who really need his help. But that isn't what God's like even here in Exodus. When it says God knew, it doesn't mean that he was somehow ignorant. And when it says that he remembered, it doesn't mean that somehow, like me, he's forgetful. Rather, we have to think about God knowing someone in relational terms. In fact, in the, the word, as, as awkward as this might seem for many of us, the word is used, the word know in the Bible is used as a euphemism for sexual intimacy. 
It is said in Genesis 4, verse 1, that Adam knew his wife Eve. It doesn't do so with a wink because it's ashamed of somehow saying sex. But because sexual intimacy really is one of the truest forms of knowing someone in human terms. To be sexually intimate with someone, according to the Bible, is to know them in an intimate and exclusive way, in a way that no one else should know that person. It's one of the reasons that the Bible says you should only be sexually intimate with someone you intend to know in that way, in a covenant, lifelong, exclusive way. But there's an even more important, there's even more to that, I shouldn't say more important, there's even more to this term than even that. I want to, again, this, this word know, just like see or hear, can sound still very passive. Certainly it's good that God hears us and sees us and knows his children, but what good is that if God insists on watching from the sidelines? What we need to see here is that God's knowledge is not passive at all. It's very, very active. Let me give an example um, I already used once a few weeks ago when I introduced this book. Over New Year's, our family shared a house with uh, Grace's family in Wisconsin. We rented a family, uh, sorry, rented a house her parents did, really generous, and got all of our crazy crew together, including 11 grandkids, all under the age of nine. It's a lot like sharing a house with a thundering herd of buffalo. As you might expect, there is a lot of, there was a lot of laughter and a lot of tears in that house. And yet, every time there were tears in that house, particularly from a child, when you heard a child cry out amidst the thundering herd, it Every parent seemed to know immediately when it was their child. They knew when it was their child that was in trouble, and especially if that child was really in trouble. If you're a parent, you know there's a difference, again, between the my brother hit me cry and the I'm hurt and I'm not sure I'll ever be okay cry. The kind of scream that makes you jump out of your bed in the middle of the night the kind of scream that makes some of you jerk the steering wheel when the person next to you gasps over a garage sale. Not that that's ever happened to me. The kind of cry that provokes an immediate response. You have to do something. When a parent, grandparent, friend, loved one hears a cry like that, it's as if you could say they remembered the person they loved, but not because they forgot them. Rather, because that cry makes all the love you feel for that person flood to your mind, and you must act. You must spring into action almost without thinking. This at least is part of what it means for God to remember. But we have to say that it doesn't often feel like God springs into action for us, does it? Instead, it may seem like he's sitting on his hands, waiting for things to get really bad. This is, how we have, this is where we have to remember just how little we can understand of what it means for God to be eternal. There will be times when it feels like God is being slow. After all, remember the Israelites had waited for 
perhaps nearly 400 years for their God to come through on his promises. You ever waited that long for something? I don't think so. But 2 Peter reminds us in chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, referring to the day of the Lord. As difficult as it may be to believe it, God is not actually slow at all. He is purposeful. He has a thousand reasons why he has, from his perspective, chosen to wait. Why, from our perspective, he seems to be silent. But, friends, God's knowledge, hear me clearly, always leads him to act on behalf of those he loves. And soon we are going to see him act and say it was good. We see this clearly, in fact, in Exodus chapter 3, which we're going to consider next week. And I want you to notice how many of the words we've already looked at show up. Exodus 3, verse 7. I don't know if I've got that. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen, hear that, seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. In other words, God has seen, God has heard, God knows his people and their sufferings, and that leads him to action in such a way that he will finally and fully rescue his people. He will draw them out of slavery, that he might draw them to himself in the land that he would show them, because he has seen, because he has heard, because he knows them. But there is one phrase here that we've skipped over that we must not been intentional to wait till now to look at it. We've already said that God remembered, but we have not looked at what he remembered. I want you to look with me at verse 24. God heard their groaning, and God remembered what? His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This leads us to number four. God remembered. To understand this, we need to look back at the book of Genesis, specifically in chapter 12, the first book in the Bible, in some of its first chapters. And a sacred promise that is in those chapters that God makes with Abraham when he first called him out of the land of Ur. The covenant that is established with Abraham here in verse 2, it says, I will make you a great nation, God speaking to Abraham, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families on the earth shall be blessed. It's an incredible expansive promise that has implications not just for Abraham, but for, if we're to believe this, every family on the earth. Who does that include? That includes, well, everyone and you. That's right, Midge. It includes me too. It's an incredible promise to make from Abraham an old man at this point who has no children to make of him from his home a family 
that would outnumber the stars in the heavens and to make use of that family as his means of blessing all nations of how his rescue would come to the human race. But at this point in their history, you have to ask, where has the promise gone? Has God forgotten it? Has he given up on it? Has he decided to switch sides to the stronger party? Maybe he's now with Egypt. Not at all. In fact, in Genesis 15, God warns Abraham, the one that these promises were given to, he warns him in advance of some of the apparent threats, one of the greatest apparent threats that would ever come to the promise, one that we now see firsthand in Exodus. In verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram at this point before he is renamed, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Where are the promises? And yet God seemingly knows all of these events in advance, so much so that he prepares them, prepares Abraham and his descendants to know that I'm not done yet. I have purposes going on that you cannot see. In fact, in verse 14, it tells us, but I will bring judgment on that, the nation that you ser they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In other words, none of what is happening in Exodus actually caught God by surprise, even as it might seem so to us, as if he had left a pot boiling over at home. As one co commentator puts it, it's not as if God smacks his forehead and says, Oh yeah, the covenant, I forgot! Rather, he assured Abraham that even after 400 years of affliction and silence, when they would be most tempted to believe he had abandoned them or forsaken his promise, he would remember his covenant better than they would. And even more importantly, he would act on what he remembers better than they could have anticipated or imagined. After all, he cared more about the promise than they did. Think about it this way. You could say in relationships, we need two things, at the very least. We need compassion and we need commitment. We need compassion and we need commitment. In relationships that matter to us most, in other words, we need to know that we matter, right? You ever been in a relationship where you, do I actually matter to them? In relationships that matter, we need to know that we do, that we are understood and seen, that the other person helps and defends us because they want to, that because we matter to them. We need compassion. But we also need commitment, don't we? Something that binds us to a relationship, especially when the relationship, like every relationship, gets difficult. You ever been in a relationship that got difficult over time? Especially when the other person fails our expectations, or, here's what's even more important, when we give the other person every reason to go walking out the door. We need to know that they won't. For example, I... Remember, uh, one time, not now a while ago, one of our children observed a heated disagreement between Grace and I. Uh, we get in them too. And 
they could, I could tell right away that it, it really affected them. They both could. And so we got down to their level and asked, hey, you doing okay? And they asked, uh, are you guys getting a divorce? See, at that point, they had already seen some of their kids, some of their friends get divorces, and we'd seen it on TV. Of course, we felt horrible, I'll tell you. You know what? I was able to comfort them, though, in that moment. I remember sitting down, my sweetheart. You know, every relationship gets in disagreements and arguments sometimes, but you never need to worry about mommy and daddy breaking up. You know why? Because of this ring that's on mom and dad's finger and because of the promises that it represents that we made to one another now almost 12 years ago. In sickness as in health, in sorrow as in joy, in poverty as in wealth, to have you and you only till for long as you both shall live. Of course, no one wants commitment without compassion, right? No one wants simply in a relationship to be tolerated and endured. Nobody wants to be stuck with simply because someone feels like they have to, right? But I also don't think we want relationships that have only compassion without commitment. We don't want a relationship that is all in at one moment and the other moment is walking out the door. For, uh, for this kind of relationship that lasts, even when the emotions are not satisfying, even when you've been given reasons to give up, for that kind of relationship, you need something that binds that relationship together when your emotions don't. We need a commitment. More importantly, we need a covenant, the Bible will say, the commitment, the promising of one person to another that no matter what comes, I am not going anywhere. Friends, according to this passage, when it comes to God, we have both compassion and commitment. In fact, you could say that his commitment is what fuels his compassion in the first place. There, this is the reason all of his concern is directed their way. There is a reason why God heard, why God saw, why God knew. Why? Because he remembered his covenant. And even when his people would forget it, even when they give up on it, as they will over and over again throughout the Bible, even when they are fickle and move on from God, God does not. In the New Testament, we read that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, the night when he was abandoned, again, just like God had been by his people, a Passover night when Jesus and his disciples would be reflecting on these events, on the, their exodus from slavery. Jesus begins to prepare them during this last meal for their greater exodus, an exodus they don't see that they needed, but a greater exodus that is coming, that they're on the very precipice of, that would be accomplished at much higher a cost. That he spoke of his own death and resurrection even during this meal. And during this meal, when he explained his death and resurrection, do you know what he spoke of as well? Specifically, as he passed the wine and broke the bread, his covenant. 
Matthew 26 tells us, as Jesus passed the cup of wine, he said, again, well, let me actually back up to verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of what? The covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. In other places, this covenant will be called the new covenant, referring to the fact that Jesus' covenant is the truest and best covenant. It is the final covenant. It is the culmination that will never expire, and it will accomplish what God sets out to do. Yet in Matthew, it's interesting, it simply speaks of the covenant. Getting at the fact that we don't have a bunch of separate covenants and commitments throughout God, I mean, throughout the Bible by God, but actually one developing covenant relationship, which God is committed to fulfilling even more than we are. In fact, he will fulfill this covenant even at the cost of his own broken body and shed blood, at the cost of his own life. Why did their exodus come? It came because of the covenant. And why did our exodus come? It comes of because of the covenant. It is why and it is how our great rescue from the slavery of sin, how forgiveness restores us to God, how we are drawn out of our slavery and drawn finally to him because of his covenant. That is why he hears us, why he will always see us, and why he knows us better than anyone else. Although, again, it is certainly true that God is compassionate towards you, he is compassionate because he has covenanted himself to you, and he is faithful to his promises, even when we are not even when we are ignorant of them or abandon them like the disciples, even when we are fickle, God is not. If I can speak to those who are not Christians here for a second, is there anything about this kind of relationship that is compelling to you? Isn't this what you found yourself looking for in friendships, romantic relationships from parents? Does any part of you wishes that this relationship were possible and enduring? Something you could, you, if you found it, you could build your life upon it. Does it make sense of your deepest longings? God assures us that this kind of compassion and commitment can break open like a dam upon you and your life as well. If you will simply trust yourself over to him, it does not come to those who have performed perfectly because that would exclude all of us. If you will simply admit that you, like me, have been fickle and sinful, and that you cannot save yourselves, that you need a greater exodus than you have ever thought that you did. Freedom from the sin that made you its slave. And if you will simply trust in Jesus and what he set out to do in the cross and resurrection and what he accomplished there in his covenant— if you will trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he will sweep you into this covenant as well forever. Christian, if 
to speak to you for a second. Do you, do you believe that God is more committed to fulfilling his promises to you than you are? His promise to be the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. To neither abandon nor forsake you. Do you believe his promises to be faithful and just to forgive your sins? To work all things together for your eternal good to make you like Jesus. To guard you for a salvation that is just ready to be revealed. Do you believe that those he predestines, he also calls? And those he calls, he also justifies. And those he justifies, he Do you believe that God not only remembers his promises to you, if you are a Christian, he cares more about fulfilling them for you than you do? Do you believe that there is a day coming where you will say to God, God, you really didn't forget me. You did see. I can see it now. You remembered me through it all. How might this transform your life if you lived like that was true? How might you speak back to the anxieties and fears that cripple you? How might you comfort others and theirs? How might you offer this good news to those who do not yet know it, inviting them into the covenant to be in the care of a God they can trust? How might you extend this same compassion and commitment in the relationships that you already have? Are you looking for an exit? collecting reasons why they owe you? How might you extend the same loving sight that your God has given you? And finally, how might this transform your prayer life? As we prepare in the coming weeks to conclude our sermon series on prayer, or sorry, our 40 days of prayer, This passage has massive implications for our prayers. At the very least, it assumes that prayer really does change things. It assumes that a sovereign God who really does hold the events of history in his hand, even the stubborn heart of Pharaoh, who knows every event before it happens, it assumes here that he chooses to respond to prayer. Friends, do you notice that what stands between, again, their slavery and their exodus is a simple groaning to God? Why, again, why can we be so certain that God would respond to our prayers? Is it because we have proven ourselves deserving or because our faith is so constant? That's definitely not true if you look at me. No, because God's covenant— And because his character will always stand. If that's true, what might you seek God's face for? What might you seek his face for again and again and again, believing he is for you? Believing that prayer really does advance God's purposes and will awaken his response. How might you pray if you believe, again, that your prayers weren't just heard, moved God's own heart. In his sovereign kindness, he has chosen to listen and respond to your prayers.
friends. Let's go to this God now in prayer. Father, we come to you as a God we need and do not deserve, a God we need to know us, see us, hear us, when we are not known, seen, or heard by others, and seen as we actually are. And we need a God who will remember not all the all the resume of wrong that we have against us, but remember your covenant. To be true to your character, to seek your glory by seeking our good. Lord, we come to you. We need that mercy even now for sorrows that I don't even know. And Lord, would you transform this church into a praying people eager to extend this love to others and invite others into this covenant and display what it means to be those who know what it is to be redeemed by his loving mercy, your loving mercy. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, who has brought the new covenant to us. Amen.